two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you, Rebecca, and welcome once again to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I am your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. Now, Claude, do you remember a time not that long ago when being against Nazis and folks of that ilk was seen by the majority of people in this country as, you know, a good thing? It's a distant memory, but yeah, yeah, I've kind of yeah. got it there. Yeah, I mean, we'll give you an idea of how many people were against them. Gangsters in real life were opposed to the Nazis. Actually, during World War II, folks like Meyer Lansky and Charlie Lucky Luciano uh, helped out the government in uh, tackling the Nazis. Although, of course, uh, that fact wasn't publicized until a few years later. And although in Barry Levinson's movie on Bugsy Siegel, Bugsy was arranging through one of his many lady loves to try and get to Mussolini, in real life, it was Goebbels or someone like that he was trying to target. So Mm -hmm. even gangsters, the scourge of society, were fighting Nazis in real life and in a few movies, too. And we're going to be looking at a couple of those movies today. All Through the Night from 1942, a Humphrey Bogart movie directed by Vincent Sherman. And from 1991, The Rocketeer, a Disney live-action comic book adaptation directed by Joe Johnston. Now, of course, Gangsters Fighting Nazis is not the only feature of both of these movies. Both of these movies are also comedies. And unlike our previous episode where the movies we were talking about, Weekend in Shame, I would say, if not masterpieces, are both pretty damn close. I'm not going to make grand claims on behalf of All Through the Night or The Rocketeer. They are both entertaining, fun melodramas. But A, there's nothing wrong with that. B, we can use both of these entertaining, fun melodramas to talk about history in general and Hollywood history in particular, which is always, in my opinion, a good thing to avoid this being something that looks like just another letterbox category. So with that in mind, Claude's going to give us the scoop on the plot of All Through the Night. Right. So All Through the Night, it is a contemporary film for its time. Uh, it, it takes place in 1942-ish. Uh, Alfred Gloves Donahue is a big-shot Broadway gambler who is played by Humphrey Bogart. Gloves is alerted by his mother, who is played by Jane Darwell, that her neighbor, Mr. Miller, the baker who makes Gloves' favorite cheesecake, is missing, and she's got a feeling that something bad has happened to him. Gloves searches the bakery, and he finds Miller's dead body stashed in the basement. A young singer, Lita Hamilton, uh, portrayed by uh, Karen Verne, uh, comes into the shop, but she leaves immediately when she hears about Miller's death. Ma Donahue thinks that the girl knows more than she's letting on, and she tracks the girl down to a nightclub, where she creates a little bit of a disturbance regarding Miller's death. Marty Callahan, the co-owner of the club, calls Gloves, telling him to come down and take care of his mother. While at the club, Gloves has a drink with Lita that is interrupted by her piano player, Peppy, played by Peter Laurie, who takes her away to a back room. 
Uh, Marty's partner, Joe Denning, turns up dead, probably at the hands of Pepe. Lita and Pepe then take off in a taxi as Gloves stumbles upon Joe's body. Before dying, Joe raises up his hand with all five fingers raised to indicate who took Lita. Gloves doesn't understand what Joe means, and he leaves to search for Lita. Unfortunately, he leaves one of his own gloves behind at the murder scene. While being suspected of Joe's murder by Marty and the police, Gloves traces the taxi to an antiques auction house, which is uh, operated by uh, Carl, Carl Ebbing and his assistant, Madame. Uh, Ebbing is played here by Conrad Veidt because there weren't enough actors from Casablanca in this film yet, and that's not a fair cop because this film came out first. Um, and Madame is played by uh, Judith Anderson. Anyway, Gloves poses as a bidder, but he is recognized by Pepe. He gets knocked out by Lita while trying to rescue her. He's then tied up and left in a storage room with one of his boys, Sunshine, who was captured earlier. Later, Lita visits them and helps them break free before they can be shipped out to New Jersey in crates. While escaping, Gloves and Sunshine walk into a room with maps, charts, a shortwave radio, and a portrait of Adolf Hitler on the wall. Uh, it's at this point that Gloves realizes what Joe was indicating before he died. Their captors are fivers, or not fifth columnist. Now, let me break away from the plot for just a second to give you a little bit of historical perspective. A fifth column is any group that's dedicated to undermining the larger group through infiltration. But in 1942, there was a special and understandable paranoia about this kind of activity going on with the Nazis. So when you said something like Fiverr, it was automatically understood to be Nazis. Gloves finds a notebook and he finds Miller's name in it and as well as that of Lita Hamilton, her original Jewish name, Uta Hamel, and a note that her father died in the Dachau concentration camp. They grab Lita and escape, pursued by Ebbing and his gang into Central Park. While they're hiding out, Lita explains that she works with Ebbing only to save her father's life. While Gloves fights with a Nazi, Lita finds and reads the torn-out page that states her father is already dead. Now the Nazis have nothing to hold over her head, so she's full-on supporting Gloves. He and Lita go to the police who search the antiques house, but they find no trace of the fifth column activity. So the police, they don't believe Gloves' story, so they attempt to arrest him. But he escapes by diving into the East River. He arrives at his lawyer's apartment only to have Marty and uh, his mob break in, eager to avenge Joe's murder. After Gloves convinced them of his innocence, the two gangs join forces against the Nazi spies. Gloves, Sunshine, and Barney go to the police station where Lita is being held. Ebbing, however, has bailed her out, and they arrive in time to see her being forced into a car. Following the car, they find a large underground Nazi meeting. Gloves and Sunshine capture two Nazis and impersonate them to get into the meeting. But Gloves is called on as the person he's impersonating. It turns out that the Nazis want him to report on his work. Gloves and Sunshine stall the meeting using a double-talk ruse until the combined gangs arrive to break the whole thing up. Ebbing escapes, but he asks Pepe to join him in a suicide attack to blow up a battleship in New York Harbor. Pepe refuses, so Ebbing kills him and proceeds on his own. Gloves follows him to the docks, but Ebbing ambushes him and forces him into a motorboat that's full of high explosives. At gunpoint, Ebbing forces Gloves to steer the boat toward the battleship, but at the last second, Gloves steers the boat off course and jumps into the water while the boat with Ebbing still on board crashes into a lumberboard and explodes, killing Ebbing. We're back at the police station. Gloves and Lita find out that all the charges have been dropped and that the mayor is going to honor him at City Hall. And Ma Donahue comes in saying that the milkman has disappeared. And as before, she's got a feeling about it. And when she's got a feeling, she's, she's got, got a, a feeling. feeling. <laughs> yes. So speaking of historical perspective yes. here, um, 
we should talk about the fact that Hollywood, like the rest of the country, most of the rest of the world, as a matter of fact, was slow to waking up to just how big a threat the Nazis were. Not everyone in Hollywood, mind you, of course, but the people in charge, for the most part, certainly, with one exception that we're going to get to momentarily. But we think these days about, or there's a lot of talk these days about Hollywood dominating or caring about the world market more than the box office that's being made in its own country. But that was pretty much true back in the 30s as well. The studios, for the most part, were doing business with Germany and other European countries, even when the Nazis seized power in Germany. And that is possibly one... Well, that is definitely one of the reasons why studios were hesitant, hesitant, excuse me, to make movies that were against the Nazi way of life at that time. I mean, that's not the only reason, of course. There's also the fact that there was a genuine fear of anti-Semitism here at home in the U.S. during the 30s. I won't uh, mention the vile epithets hurled toward Jews at the time, but know that there were numerous people in power making them, and some of them were in government and some on local censor boards around the country. And since most of the people who were running the studios were Jewish, they had a genuine reason to fear uh, reprisals against themselves if they decided to make uh, anti-Nazi movie. And then finally, even if they weren't afraid of that, the Hayes Code or the Production Code people led by Joseph Breen would not have allowed any of that in the movies. I mean, technically speaking, the any movie that was made that was protesting Nazism wasn't violating the tenets of the code, but Breen and company did not want anything controversial being released by the studios. And so most of the studios were happy to comply with all of that, except for that one exception, the studio that released All Through the Night, Warner Brothers. I mean, granted, they pulled their punches to a certain extent as well. Um, Black Legion, a movie Bogart had been in a few years earlier about a Ku Klux Klan type group that Bogart joins up with before he realizes what he's got himself into, was about that group targeting foreigners but those foreigners were clearly Jewish, and yet the movie doesn't mention that at all. Also, uh, Warner Brothers did a biopic of the French writer Emile Zola, called The Life of Emile Zola, that talked about, among other things, his coming to the defense of uh, Albert Dreyfus during that whole trial, and yet the word Jew is never mentioned in that movie either. And mm -hmm. even in the first movie that openly attacked Nazism, 
Confessions of a Nazi Spy, which was made in 1938. Again, they mention how evil the Nazis were, but they don't mention specifically who they were targeting. Nevertheless, Warner Brothers alone was the studio that refused to do business with Nazi Germany when Hitler came to power. And again, you know, they were the first movie studio to make movies against the Nazis. I'm not going to make any great claims for Confessions of a Nazi Spy as a movie either. It's pretty ham-handed. But nevertheless, at the time, it was pretty courageous. And it's no wonder. And also the Warner Brothers themselves, particularly Harry and Jack, were very open and vocal about their support for any Nazi leagues that shot up in Hollywood during that time, which were mostly populated by stars and writers and directors at the time. And so it's no wonder that Groucho Marx, who was not often someone to say anything serious uh, at one anti-Nazi meeting, toasted the studio by saying that they were the only ones in Hollywood with any guts. So they, that's sort of the background for them releasing this movie. Now, again, not making any great claims for the movie. This story most likely originated as something else. And then when the war broke out, the studio decided to turn it into an anti-Nazi movie. But as I said, it is a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it it absolutely is, and I also I have to wonder if if part of the the reason that that Warner was among the first to um, to really acknowledge the whole you know Nazis are bad scene is just because like so many of the actors in the studio it was like a cultural kind of thing so many actors had come over from europe and were able to basically say hey stuff is terrible over there this is a bad situation this is what's going on and and you got like and and to jump on casablanca for just a minute when you've got like so many of those actors were you know originally european and had escaped to get out from under the nazis you know that that has to to um to kind of color the attitude. And so you got all these guys. And then also you got Conrad Veidt, who was on loan from, uh, I think it was MGM, uh, appearing in both of these films. So it, but it, so it was the same kind of thing, whereas these are people who understood innately what the situation was over in Europe. And that might not have been the, the, the case in other studios because they just didn't have the bodies on hand that, that really knew what was up. Well, I mean... Other studios were definitely employing people from Germany. You know, uh, Billy Wilder was ensconced over at Paramount, for example. And um, so were a couple other people that I recall. And I think it was more that the other studios, as I said, were the other studio heads, excuse me, were afraid of confronting it and the Warner Brothers were not. Now, I was going to get to Casablanca in a little bit, but I will mention that one of the great ironies of a lot of these anti-Nazi movies 
is that the actors playing the Nazis themselves, a lot of them, though not all, of course, were played by German refugees. Mm -hmm. So they gave that gave the movies a little more kick. And Conrad Veidt, we should mention, although he was not Jewish, um, I believe his wife was, but even so, uh, just to tick the Nazis off even more, he would identify himself as Jewish because he knew that it would send the Nazis back home into uh, apoplectic fits. <laughs> so that was his uh, nice way of saying F you to them. Now, another thing about the Hayes Code we should mention is that they always tried to make it so that good triumphed and evil did not. And so the good guys wouldn't have been allowed to be Nazis. That's why in this movie, they Gloves and his uh, folk are called gamblers or nightclub owners. But when you've got people like Humphrey Bogart or um, Barton McLean, who plays Marnie Callahan, or Edward Brophy, who plays Joe Denning, or even Peter Laurie, even though he wasn't strictly um, someone who was cast in gangster movies. When, when you have all these guys who have been in a number of gangster movies uh, for the studio and elsewhere, then audiences at the time, no doubt, were able to pick up on the fact that even though these guys aren't called gangsters, for all intents and purposes, that's what they are. After all, they are in trouble with the police all the time, and they talk to each other like they're gangsters, and they even talk about muscling in like gangsters do. So... That was a way of slipping things by the code here. Yeah, I, I think between that and the fact that this is framed largely as a comedy uh, also is a, is a kind of a way of getting it under the radar. Because the, these these are some, I, I don't want to say Runyon-esque, but they, they, they kind of are. I mean, yes, they, they do use contractions when they speak, unlike most Runyon characters. But, but, they, but they do seem to fill certain... Um, archetypes i guess and including one character um barney who is just played almost entirely as as a comedy character frank McHugh, by yes, the way is yes. the actor who plays them and he has also been in a couple of other gangster movies including one with bogart the roaring 20s mm -hmm. although the most of his scenes in that movie were with james cagney but speaking of the fact that this was a comedy Although the movies that Warner Brothers did, with the exception of their prestige pictures, like The Life of Emile Zola and King's Row and things like that, uh, most of the movies they did um, had a comic spin to them, whether it was the musicals, that, like the Busby Berkeley movies they made, or the gangster movies, or... Um, or even the melodramas, uh, you know, there are funny moments in Now Voyager, for example, mm -hmm. and even in uh, Dark Victory, and of course in their adventure movies, which we're going to talk about a little more when we get to The Rocketeer, but, you know, there was a clear con comic sensibility to all those movies, even if they weren't entirely comedies, and yet 
Warner Brothers as a studio didn't make a lot of out-and-out comedies. So this was kind of unusual for them. Um, you know, and the ones that they did make were sort of hit and miss. You know, you got things on the plus side, like a movie Betty Davis and Leslie Howard did together called It's Love I'm After. But then you'd also get things like Davis and uh, James Cagney uh, in a screwball romantic comedy called The Bride Camp COD, which to paraphrase Linda Richman, was neither romantic nor funny. <laughs> so All Through the Night is kind of an outlier in that respect, although they had done a couple of their gangster comedies before, like A Slight Case of Murder with Edward G. Robinson that also had Edward Brophy in it and Brother Orchid. So the comedies generally speaking, we're tied to the genre movies. But still, this is uh, more of an out-and-out comedy than most of the Warner Brothers movies at the time. Right, and I, I think you're right in that that's the, t- that's the stuff that tends to work a little bit better with them is when they take a specific genre and they just overlay with, with a little bit of, of comedy. I think that's, that's why, you know, several of the movies we've already discussed just, just work so well is because what you've got is a pretty good story. And then they start inserting the humor here and there. And, and, and I, I think it's also really why you and I also appreciate Aaron Sorkin's writing so much because he can do the same thing. He takes these deadly serious topics and which would be very dry and boring in a lot of situations and he manages to inject just enough humor that will keep you coming for a little bit more but yeah this is this is um more like a comedy with a drama overlaid on top of it rather than the other way around right and another thing that is always a treat to talk about when we talk about studio era movies is of course the murderer's row of character actors who show up here you know we've already mentioned some of them here um including uh dame judith anderson well she wasn't then so right conrad (laughs) white and jane darwell and frank McHugh and peter laurie and william demarest Mm -hmm. and we also get people like uh, Wallace Ford, who plays the lawyer. Uh, he gets the colorful Runyon-esque name of Spatz Hunter. And then we also get two future comic geniuses who show up uh, in uh, early roles here. One of Gloves' gang is played by none other than Mr. Ralph Cramden himself, Jackie Gleason, and the waiter at the restaurant where Gloves goes to get the um, Miller's cheesecake served to him is played by none other than Sergeant Bilko himself, Phil Silvers. And then also the guy who plays Miller, um, he is played by a, um, I think a German actor named Ludwig Stossel. And he has a small, actually, he's uh, Austrian-Hungarian, I should say. And he has a small role in Casablanca. He's part of a couple that is going to America and practicing English not very well. And 
He's probably most famous, though, for playing the father of Lou Gehrig in Pride of the Yankees. But he uh, he's also very good here, even though it's a pretty small part. Yeah, I actually recognize Stossel by his voice rather than his face because I've, I've just got... I've got that 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 scene from Casablanca just etched in my head. So as soon as I heard his voice, I was like, oh, that's the guy from that couple that's trying to say, well, you know, trying to figure out what time it is in English. Yes. And speaking of Casablanca, again, caveat here, we're not making great claims about this particular movie, but you can see that... Gloves is sort of a warm-up role for the part that Bogart would play in Casablanca and in a few other movies during the decade, like To Have and Have Not and Key Largo. And, you know, in Casablanca, of course, uh, he says, I stick my neck out for nobody, although there are two radically different reasons why. You know, in Casablanca, of course, he's a former idealist who has become completely cynical, whereas in Officer of the Night, he just doesn't care. You know, as far as he's concerned, if it's not on the sports page, it doesn't happen. And then in To Have and Have Not, he stays out of it because he knows what he's up against and he doesn't want to get mixed up in it. And that's sort of the same as well with Key Largo. But this is sort of a warm-up here. And while the character of Gloves doesn't have the depth of, say, Rick Blaine or Harry Morgan and To Have and Have Not or the character he plays even in Key Largo, which is my least favorite of the movies we're talking about here, even though there's some good stuff in it, he still has the same type of moral reawakening um, when he gives that speech near the end to Marty telling, um, telling him what exactly the Nazis are like. Now, obviously, that's a screenwriter's device, that speech he's giving, but Bogart manages to carry it off. And it's worth mentioning as well, when he's confronting Ebbing about what he's seen at the factory, and Ebbing is trying to entice him over his side and saying, you know, we're both so alike, you know, it's clear we should work together. And Glove says, it's clear you're screwy. I've been a registered Democrat ever since I could vote. Bogart in real life was a registered Democrat. Not very political, not as much as his fourth and final wife, Lauren Bacall, was, but he was a registered Democrat. So, Yeah, Gloves is, is the kind of guy, he, 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 the only reason he gets involved in the first place is, is I think is he's got a certain level of dedication, A, to his mother, and B, to his home neighborhood. So Miller disappears. He's going to do something about it because that's that's his old his old stomping ground back in uh, Brooklyn somewhere. Right. And, you know, especially to his mother, the thing we inserted at the end, uh, she, if she's got a feeling, she's got a feeling. You know, that's a running gag they do throughout the movie. And I will say, um, even though Jane Darwell had played that type of role before, particularly in The Grapes of Wrath, because she's doing it for comic effect this time, it does work pretty well. The only thing in this movie that doesn't work well, and 
unfortunately, when we're talking about studio movies, uh, we seem to run into a lot of this, is the uh, black servant that Gloves has. It's straight out of stereotype 101, but fortunately, he's not in the movie for very long, so... Yeah, that 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 is kind of unfortunate, but is also kind of typical. And I think you know, ugh, here we go. We're going to say Casablanca again. It's like Sam is about the only character who is close to not being that. And even there, you you still get a little bit of it here and there. Uh, you know, a he's a servant, and you know, although he is paid and he is a loyal servant, but he is still you know somewhat less than. Right now um let's see if there was oh yeah bogart is also not someone known for comedy per se um he did do a comedy early on in his career an underrated comedy i would argue early in his career called stand-in with leslie howard and jean blondel but howard and blondel were the ones who did most of the heavy lifting in that movie when it came to the comedy. But he actually plays the comedy very well, and he keeps up with the dialogue of the scene. And, oh, yeah, one other comic actor that I forgot to mention here, the guy who plays Sunshine, William Demarest. We've discussed him before in... um, the Preston Sturges movie we talked about, Solvent's Travels, and we're going to get to him again in a future episode in another Preston Sturges movie. But he and Bogart have to carry a lot of the movie because they're on screen together a lot, and they work really well together. They do. I, I kind of like the relationship they had. With him. It was it was really almost to the point where where Barney started to distract me a little bit. You know, well as as he 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 kind of he he tended to to pull down his scenes a little bit, I think because he was such a broad comic actor or, or, or comic character, I should say, you know, as, as opposed to Demarest, who was a funny guy, but he was still managing to, to work on moving the whole story forward. And yeah, he, he and, um, and Bogart had some, some really great chemistry together. Well, McHugh also is uh, playing a character who's basically set up as a running gag throughout the movie. Because remember, Barney is trying to get with his wife throughout the entire movie, but gloves won't let him. Right. You know, they make all the cracks about um, you know, to him that you know he should enjoy the experience, and he says, "But I haven't had any experience." Right. But, but, you know, it just, I don't know, for me, it just kind of got to the point was like, just let this guy go already because he's irritating. He's starting to irritate me now. And, and, and and it's not like he has some like funky redeeming moment later on where he suddenly, you know, charges in and does something amazing. He's just, just consistently this guy. Well, I mean, he does get to inflict quite a bit of damage in the uh, fight between the gangs and the Nazis uh, near the end. Yeah, you so see how Lita. he's crossed <laughs> up. He, and you, you see how he cross, put crosses on all the guys that he uh, knocked out. Now they were V's, the v, for, v for victory. Yes. Um, and speaking of Lita, um, I will say this. Um, Karen Verne um, sings pretty well. She sings the um, title song, mm-hmm. which was written by Johnny Mercer and Arthur Schwartz, who uh, 
Claude, you might know of because he was the father of famous WNEW DJ, Jonathan, Jonathan. Schwartz. Yes. And um, so, as I said, she sings pretty well, although as an actress, she does sort of, uh, she is sort of the weak link here for me anyway. Um, if you want to draw Casablanca um, parallels again, she's sort of a warm up to Ilsa Lund here. But of course, Ilsa is not is a lot more complex, so it may be unfair. But I have to admit, I was kind of making the comparison there. I well, I didn't make the comparison to Ilsa, but y- yeah, I, I I found her to be a little bit uh, maybe I don't know, maybe she was just underwritten. I don't I don't know exactly if this was. I don't know if this was a um, like just a role that she couldn't carry off, or just a role that wasn't especially well written. But yeah, there there was something kind of weird there, and it just wasn't quite working. Uh, well, I would um, as I'm looking through her IMD page, IMDb page, it looks like she was not in that many movies to begin with. Uh, she had been in um, an earlier anti-Nazi thriller for the studio called Underground, and she was in The King's Row, and she's in a secret uh, Sherlock Holmes movie, and she was in uh, another World War II themed movie called The Seventh Cross. But then after that, her career kind of died, basically. I mean, she was in The Bad and the Beautiful, but it was in an uncredited role. So she didn't really do much aside from uh, those movies, whereas most of the other actors in this movie uh, had either long careers before this or continued to have long careers after this, except for, of course, sadly, Conrad Veidt, since he passed away not long after making Casablanca. Mm-hmm. But um, is there anything else you want to mention about this movie before we wrap things up here? Uh, nothing. I'm not going to connect to Rocketeer later. So, no. Okay. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll uh, start off with the Rocketeer. All right. Welcome back to the third half of the show. How was your break? It was fine. Thank you. Okay. And how was yours? It was very relaxing. Okay, so let's get started with uh, Claude giving us the plot summary for The Rocketeer, which, unlike All Through the Night, is a period piece since it was made in 1991. Yeah, so as we mentioned, we were in New York City 1942 before, and meanwhile, across the continent in 1938, Los Angeles, uh, two gangsters belonging to a gang run by Eddie Valentine, who is played by Paul Sorvino, has stolen a rocket pack from Howard Hughes. During their escape from the authorities that ends up on an airfield, one gangster is killed and the getaway driver hides the rocket pack and stunt pilot Cliff Secord's racing plane is shot down and destroyed in the chase, which effectively pretty much wraps up his career. Uh, Cliff, who is played by Billy Campbell and his airplane mechanic sidekick PV, played by Alan Arkin, find the rocket pack hidden inside the cockpit of a different plane. We learn that movie star Neville Sinclair played by Timothy Dalton and thinly modeled after Errol Flynn, had hired Valentine's gang to steal the rocket pack, and he sends his huge but talented henchman Lothar to question the injured getaway driver who tells him about his hiding the rocket pack at the airfield. 
Cliff's girlfriend is aspiring actress Jenny Blake, who is played here by Jennifer Connelly. She has a uh, small part in Sinclair's latest swashbuckling film, but uh, their relationship is starting to fray around the edges a little bit. Sinclair overhears Cliff trying to tell Jenny about the rocket pack, so he invites her to dinner. Afterward, at a local air show, Cliff uses the rocket pack and PV's newly designed helmet, which both hides his face and improves Cliff's uh, control over the rocket pack's uh, direction, to rescue his elderly friend Malcolm, who is piloting an aged and finicky biplane in his place. The newsreel press and Valentine's gangsters all see this from the airshow audience, whereupon the mystery man is dubbed the Rocketeer, and he becomes a media sensation. Unfortunately, it also sets both Sinclair and the FBI on Cliff's tail. Sinclair sends Lothar to Cliff and Peavy's home to find the rocket pack. The FBI arrives, but Cliff and Peavy escape, while Lothar steals the rocket pack's detailed schematics that were drawn up by Peavy. Later, at the airfield diner, Cliff and Peavy are trapped by several of Valentine's mobsters. They learn about Jenny's date with Sinclair and the actor's involvement in the hunt for the rocket pack, which leads them to believe that Sinclair might be double-crossing them somehow. The diner patrons overpower the gangsters, but in the melee, a bullet ricochet punctures the rocket pack's fuel tank, which PV temporarily patches with Cliff's chewing gum. Cliff proceeds to the South Seas Club, where he tells Jenny that he's the rocketeer. The Valentine gang arrives, and Jenny is kidnapped by Sinclair in the ensuing fight. At Sinclair's home, Jenny discovers that he is a Nazi secret agent, and she finds PV's copy of the rocket plans. She stashes them in her clothes and she knocks Sinclair out, but she is soon recaptured. Sinclair tells Cliff to bring the rocket pack to the Griffith Observatory in exchange for her life. Just before he's arrested by the FBI and taken to Hughes and Peavy, Cliff hides the rocket pack. Howard Hughes, who is nicely underplayed by Terry O'Quinn, explains that this rocket pack is a prototype, similar to one that Nazi scientists have. Until now, been unsuccessful in developing. Hughes then shows them a propaganda cartoon that reveals the scope of the Nazis' plans. It shows an army of rocket pack soldiers using these personal jets to invade the United States. He also then mentions that the FBI are trying to locate a Nazi spy in Hollywood, at which point Cliff realizes that's Sinclair. When Hughes and the FBI demand the return of the rocket pack, Cliff explained that he needs it to rescue Jenny, and he escapes using a scale model prototype of the Spruce Goose as a zipline slash glider, but he inadvertently leaves behind a clue to where he's headed. Cliff flies to the rendezvous where uh, Sinclair demands Cliff hand over the rocket pack, but Cliff divulges to Eddie and his gang that the actor is a Nazi and the evidence quickly backs Cliff up. Valentine is furious and his gang turn their weapons on Sinclair and Lothar, but Sinclair was ready for them and a troop of heavily armed Nazi stormtroopers who are hidden at the observatory uh, suddenly show up. With everyone at an apparent stalemate, the Nazi rigid airship Luxembourg, supposedly in the U.S. on a peace mission, appears overhead to evacuate Sinclair. FBI agents suddenly announce their presence, having also secretly surrounded the area. They and the mobsters join forces to battle the Nazis. In the enormous firefight that takes place, Sinclair and Lothar escape, dragging Jenny with them aboard the airship. Cliff rockets too and then boards the airship, but during the ensuing confrontation, Jenny accidentally sets the bridge on fire with a flare gun. Sinclair holds Jenny hostage, forcing Cliff to give him the rocket pack, but perhaps you remember that patch made of chewing gum. Cliff removes this gum on the sly, allowing fuel to leak near the rocket pack's exhaust. Sinclair puts on the rocket pack and flies off, 
but the leaked fuel causes the rocket pack and Sinclair to catch on fire, causing Sinclair to plummet to his death on fire as he crashes into the Hollywood land sign. The resulting explosion destroys the land part of the sign and leaving the sign the way we all know it today. And as the airship begins to go up in flames, Lothar is killed when the airship explodes, but Cliff and Jenny are rescued at the last moment by Howard Hughes and Peavy, who are flying an autogyro. Hughes later presents Cliff with a brand new GB Air Racer and a fresh pack of Beeman's gum. As Hughes leaves, Jenny pulls out PV's rocket pack blueprints, which she found in Sinclair's home. PV discuss- decides that with some modifications, he can build an even better one. Okay, so first we have to mention the fact that the movie here is based on a falsehood. Claude mentioned that Neville Sinclair is modeled on Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn was a major star at Warner Brothers in the 30s and 40s until alcohol got the better of him. And he was the star of many wartime movies, westerns, uh, a pretty good biopic called Gentleman Jim, about the boxer, but mostly he was known for swashbucklers like Captain Blood, the Seahawk, and best of all, The Adventures of Robin Hood. And off screen, he was a womanizer. Uh, There was a movie made a few years ago with Kevin Kline called The Last Robin Hood about his statutory rape incident. And He was an alcoholic, but there was a biography that was written about Flynn uh, that came out in 1980 that also charged that Flynn was secretly a Nazi sympathizer. And since then, uh, after The Rocketeer was made, there has been documentation coming forth to show that that charge was simply not true at all. So you may have to get past that in order to enjoy this movie. But since Sinclair is a fictional character, and there are, although there are a couple of real Hollywood characters who pop in briefly when Neville is with Jenny at that club, uh, Clark Gable and W.C. Fields are both impersonated by people. But there's no mannerisms in Dalton's performance of Neville to particularly indicate that he is Errol Flynn. So you should be able to put that aside to enjoy this. Yeah, I, and, and I, 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 I wasn't really going with the whole Errol Flynn as a Nazi sympathizer thing. I had heard that. But, I mean, it was, it was pretty clear he was a good-looking guy. He was... Uh, according to his own description, the third biggest actor in Hollywood. Uh, you know, you had the little pencil mustache going on, the Daring Do swashbuckly films that he was in. You know, clearly we're looking at a Flynn-type character. Right, but as I said, that whole plot line was inspired by the false claim about right. Flynn being a Nazi. But speaking of that swashbuckling uh, scene, they do... You know, they do show a recreation of uh, Flynn, of um, Sinclair yeah, fighting, <laughs> in a, fighting in a, a swashbuckling scene just so that they can show the actress 
playing the role that Jenny wanted, but it also contains what I think is a quintessential swashbuckler movie type moment when he fights off the bad guy, he jumps on the table and the woman character says to him something along the lines of, oh, if I could only drink of your lips the same way you're drinking of the cup or something like that. And when she gets it right, Sinclair turns to her, you know, nods, raises his glass and a toast and then drinks from it. That captures the spirit of those great old swashbuckler movies pretty well, I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's because you, you've got the sword fight up on the up on the stairs that takes place. And he has to jump off of that to grab onto the the, the chandelier rope and and basically swing himself over to the table. And the only thing it didn't have really was when he lets go of the rope. Well, that chandelier is supposed to come crashing down on somebody and it just barely misses a couple of guys uh, in the background of the shot. Um, but other than that, yeah, it, it covers it pretty well. Right. And Joe Johnston, of course, would go on to recreate the 30s and 40s in another movie more famous than this one, the first Captain America movie, of course. But while the special effects in this movie are nowhere near as big um, and as uh, technically proficient as they are in the Captain American movie, they were pretty well done, I think. They are fun. Now, there is one effect we need to talk about because... That was brought up by quite a few reviewers at the time, which is, you know, the movie's fun and all, but how does Cliff not set his ass on fire every time (laughs) he turns the rocket on? Uh, Asbestos pants? (laughs) You know, I'm tempted to use the old uh, Simpsons joke from uh, when Lucy Lawless guest starred on the show and she said that you know listen if there's any question that you know anything in xena that doesn't make sense a wizard did us there you go or or you know you could go with the mystery science theater 3000 just relax it's a tv show (laughs) right yeah but uh anyway um and since we're talking about uh all-time old-time actors with Errol Flynn here. Billy Campbell is an actor who I think never really had the career he deserved um, because I think he would have done better in the studio era. You know, he had that type of persona here that he um, could play the type of roles that, say, Tyrone Power played, although I think he's a better actor than Power. Mm-hmm. You know, he had that light leading man thing. Uh, most of his work, uh, most of his good work was actually done for television. He was in a short lived series um, called Moon Over Miami with um, Allie Walker. That was supposed to, that was a pretty good thin man throwback type of thing. And then he was also good in a more dramatic part, but still on the lighthearted side in the uh, TV show Once and Again, uh, where he and Sailor Ward played divorcees who fall in love. It's by the same folks who did 30-something in My Soul Called Life. Mm-hmm. Movie-wise, he didn't do a lot. Uh, the only other big movie that I remember him in was in Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of Dracula. 
where he has to put on the Texas accent, not entirely convincingly, mm-hmm. but but no, I think he does a good job here of playing this uh, you know stock stolid leading man type role who nevertheless is able to handle himself in a fight and has a sense of fun about himself. Yeah, and I think it actually it, it works in this particular case having a relative unknown in the role, I think, you know, because he does have a few you know, better known names around him. And so he becomes a little bit more of an unknown quality just to begin with. And and so when a lot of people are in that, that airfield crowd going, who is this guy? Well, you know, they're kind of doing what a lot of the viewers in the audience were doing when he first comes on screen. Who is this guy? You know, and, and so I think it, it, it adds to the the air of, of mystery for the character because he is not somebody uh, like where we're going to overlay some sort of thing about him in order to um, which, 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 which would color our, our view of the character. You know, there are lots of like how many times are you watching a movie or you're telling somebody about a movie and you say something like and then Robert De Niro did this and then Robert De Niro did that. As rather than referring to the character Robert De Niro was playing in that film, you don't wind up doing that in this particular case because Cliff is just kind of some guy. Whereas, you know, PV, I would have myself saying, and Alan Arkin does this, and Alan Arkin does that. You know, I would have to think and say, PV does that. So it, it, I think it, it works in this particular case. Well, as a matter of fact, it's funny you should say that because Disney actually wanted, Disney is the studio, of course, who produced this. They actually wanted a bigger name in the part. They wanted people like uh, Kevin Costner or uh, Massey Modine or Bill Paxton or someone like that. But it was Johnston and the guy who wrote the comic, that the comic book that this was based on, Dave Stevens. They were the ones who said, nah we're doing this with uh, Billy Campbell or we're not doing it. So all credit to them for uh, sticking to uh, Campbell. Yeah. And it's not that they, that they wouldn't have worked. Uh, you know, I, I know that like one of the actors that Disney wanted would have been Johnny Depp and, you know, as good as he is, I don't think he would have worked in this one. He would have been, well, he, 91, he wasn't quite as big as, as he became later on, but, but he still would have been a little bit of a distraction. Okay, now let's talk about some of those names who were in this. Yes, let's. Um, you know, Paul Sorvino, um, although he, you know, had played um, gangster movie, gangster roles before and has uh, played them since. You know, of course, he was Paulie in Goodfellas, and mm-hmm. he's on a, a TV show on Epics called The Godfather of Harlem where he's playing a gangster role here. Uh, This is more of a lighthearted role, but he does play it very well, and he does get to deliver that great speech after he finds out that Sinclair is a Nazi and uh, does that very well. And then you've also got an early appearance by Margot Martindale, character actress. She plays the woman who runs the diner that the pilots all like to hang out at. And the uh, pilot that Cliff, as the rocketeer, ends up rescuing 
is played by Eddie Jones, who died like about a year or two ago. But he's he showed up in some good movies like The Grifters, where he plays John Cusack's mentor Mm -hmm. and uh, League of Their Own, where he plays the father of a ball player and Sneakers, where he plays uh, someone who is an NSA agent who is not who he seems. Right. And, you know, in this one, as in A League of Their Own, he's playing essentially a good guy if somewhat flawed. And he does that very well. And we also have, along with Ed Ladder, who plays one of the FBI agents, we have a West Wing actor playing his partner, James Handy, who played Congressman Bruno right. on a couple episodes of The West Wing. So they're all good in smaller roles here. Also, oh, and um, John Polito. Yeah. We should mention John Polito. John Polito and, and William Sanderson. Yes, William Sanderson's here as well. Now, the actor who plays Lothar, um, the actor's name is Tiny Ron. If you want to know why he looks sort of like Frankenstein, it's because he was made up to look like uh, an actor named Rondo, uh, Rondo Hatton who was a star of a lot of uh, B-horror movies of the 1930s and 1940s. He was uh, in a movie called The House of Horrors. Um, There is one semi-A movie that he was, well, not semi, he was in an A movie called uh, In Old Chicago, which got nominated for uh, Best Picture Uh, the year it came out. But a lot of his roles and a lot of his uh, movies were B-movies or movies where he played the heavy. So that was a tip of of the hat to that actor. That's not something I knew until long after I'd seen The Rocketeer. But yeah, that shows that Johnston, or at least the writers, knew their stuff here. Yeah, but at the same time, he was so heavily made. I mean, he was looking like, you know, a Dick Tracy villain almost. And and it, it kind of took me out a little bit because now I'm wondering if this is some guy who is heavily made up and is we're going to have like some sort of Scooby-Doo moment where the makeup's going to come off and he's going to turn out to be somebody else. And as the as the as the film moves on, you realize that's not necessarily the case. This is just some guy with a lot of, uh, you know, latex and, and prosthetics on it on his face and, and made up to look like just some big, scary guy. And and and, I, and you, we mentioned the um, the effects earlier. And I guess this is one of the few that that really fa- fails for me because most of them actually look pretty good. I mean, they do a lot of miniature work. Which, which works pretty well. There's some um, stop-motion animation, which works pretty well. There, there, I, you know, once in a while, you might catch a wire or something like that, you know, suspending a character or guiding, guiding um, a vehicle about to crash into another vehicle. But for the most part, from an effect standpoint, it stands up really well. And this actually brings me back to All Through the Night, where there was a little bit near the end of some miniature work that was terrible. And you could just see, like, here's the toy boat in the toy water with the toy Manhattan in the background. And no, that that one just wasn't working out very well at all. That took me right out. But over here in the Rocketeer, most everything looked pretty good. 
Yeah, I mean, computer technology was not what it is now back then. Remember, we're talking 30 years ago. So it worked for me. And mm-hmm. yes, that toy bought an officer the night was cheesy, but then the whole movie is supposed to be cheesy. So that didn't worry me much either. Now, one part of history we should uh, mention as well, real history, not just Hollywood history, is those uh, pilots. You have to remember yeah. that um, plane, airplanes, airlines, weren't really as prevalent back then as, of course, they are today, you know. So you still had in many places the idea that planes were not really safe and somewhat of a novelty. And the folks who were barnstorming pilots, like Cliff and the character that Eddie Jones plays... You know, they were Malcolm. They were pilots who had been in things like the circus or possibly with Malcolm's case, since he was old enough, they were folks who flew during World War One when you had the uh, biplanes uh, flying around, uh, you know, and uh, and the man that uh, Snoopy uh, would be uh, fighting the Red Baron. (laughs) So, yeah, and, and, a, and in fact, the the plane that that uh, Cliff is flying in the opening of the film is it's called the GB Racer, and it was a pretty dangerous plane. And and you know, even there are still some operating models around these days, and they 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 are tough to handle. And it's it's kind of touched on at the beginning of the film when they when they first talk about it uh, that and and that they have a hard time landing, and as a result when they used actual GBs to, to fly, they were limited in the number of times that they could take the plane up and land the plane down because landings were actually kind of rough on that plane. It's, it's, it's a weird kind of plane. And supposedly it was actually known as the Widowmaker for that reason because even, if you're going, even, it, even though it was built for stunting, it wasn't built safely for stunting. And so a lot of pilots would die in, in using the GBs. Okay, that's something I did not know. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I do, did know going into the movie, because when this movie came out, um, the fanzine that I used to write for, Capra, they mentioned this quite a bit. Um, even though Jenny sort of looks like Elizabeth Taylor in the movie, and... Um, Jennifer Connelly, having met her in real life, uh, she does have that Elizabeth Taylor uh, look Mm -hmm. in real life as well. Um, Her character was modeled on someone who wouldn't be around, wouldn't become famous until the 1950s, Betty Page. Yes. So um, that's a little of a look here. And Connelly plays that pretty well, you know, that even though she is, in a sense, playing the girl here, because, of course, she gets uh, captured and is in distress her um, the last third of the movie, you always get the sense that there's a lot uh, 
to a lot more to her that she's pretty much on the ball. Even after she gets initially captured, for example, and uh, Neville is trying to pretend that he's actually did this because he's doing it under orders. You know, it looks like they're going to have sex and then she knocks him out with a uh, vase. And although the line she gets right after that is pretty cheesy, you know, she says, I finally got a scene with Neville Sinclair. You know, it's not overly cheesy and she makes it work. And she and Campbell do have pretty good chemistry together. Yeah, they do. And, and, and I was, the other, the other thing where she actually takes on a little agency is earlier in that same scene where she, where she knocks out um, Sinclair is when she first wakes up after having been chloroformed and, you know, she's kind of taking stock of what's going on and then she hears him coming. So she gets back in the bed to pretend she's still knocked out and waits for him to wake her up. And, and so, you know, just another scene where, yeah, this is somebody who's got a little bit of smarts, but for the most part, yeah, she's the girl and she's the damsel in distress who has to be rescued. And she's also the one who makes the mistake toward the end of firing off a flare gun inside a hydrogen-powered airship. So. Yeah, well, you know, that's um, one of my um, former colleagues at Capra would talk about things like that. Like, for example, the scene in um, Charade when James Coburn is lighting matches in front of Audrey Hepburn. And she's like, why doesn't Hepburn just blow them out? And my reaction to something like that is, if you're in that kind of heightened circumstance and you're freaked out, would you be thinking so rationally? Yeah, I get it. So I do excuse that. And uh, now one actor we have not mentioned uh, at all, except in the summary, Terry O'Quinn playing Howard Hughes. Now, Howard Hughes is the one real-life figure who gets mentioned by name who's a significant figure here, mm-hmm. um, aside from W.C. Fields and Clark Gable, who, as I said, are merely cameos. But in real life, whether he was so cooperative with the government, that's kind of hard to say, and there's kind of been conflicting uh, viewpoints on that. But again, Terry O'Quinn does a very um, convincing job playing use here. And going back to the Marvel Universe, um, Howard Stark... um, I guess is modeled in part on Howard Hughes. And I would like to think that um, Dominic Cooper, who I guess has played Howard Hughes and Howard Stark in a lot of the MCU um, movies, took his cue from O'Quinn's performance here, not just in the look, but in his whole manner. Right, because like that. Like I said, really he, he, he he kind of underplays it a little bit, which is which is nice because a lot of times when you see Howard Hughes, he's always portrayed as this big, larger than life kind of guy. And you know, Hughes in this case, I mean, he's a no nonsense. He's a businessman. Now he is kind of ambivalent about working with the government, you know, and, and and we get that right up front. You know, he you know he once when the when the rocket pack disappears. You know, his attitude is pretty much, well, that's the end of that. I'm not I'm not going to pursue this anymore. And he actually destroys the plans that he has. So at the end of the film, when the pack is 
known to be destroyed. He's not worried about it anymore because as far as he's concerned, you know what? That project's done. I'm out of here. And, and so he is, he is fine with the, with the thing being gone forever. So, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag as far as, well, I'm going to cooperate with the government, but only to a certain extent. And I think he, he puts it as something along the lines of as I see fit or, you know, some, something like that. He, 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 he's very specific about how he's going to temper what he does and what he doesn't do with the government. Right. And then the last actor we should mention here, of course, is Alan Arkin as PV. Now, Alan Arkin, I should mention up top, is one of my favorite actors. I've been a huge fan of him ever since The In-Laws, which is one of the few movies made after 1960 that my father actually liked. And I have to admit, the first time I saw this movie, the voice he was putting on PV kind of irritated me a little. (laughs) But really? I will admit that upon subsequent viewings, I did um, become more tolerant of it. And while he's not my favorite actor in this movie, um, that would probably go to Timothy Dalton, who is clearly having loads of fun as Neville Sinclair here. Yeah. But Arkin does do a uh, decent job. I think he does a pretty solid job. He, he's got like a lot of like little bits of throwaway business that he does in the backgrounds and just the way he, he conveys some of the stuff that he does. Um, it, it's, it's just a very natural kind of way of behaving. And, and, and so I think that's, that, that's what it is. And I think this was, I'm kind of paraphrasing Spencer Tracy here is like, I don't act, I behave, you know, and that's kind of what Arkin does in this film. He, he just, he just does PV stuff. He doesn't go in there and be PV, if that makes sense. Right. Now, one bit of trivia I do want to mention before we uh, wrap it up. Um, of course, an important plot point is the gum that PV sticks on the back of the actual rocket to uh, plug up the uh, leaking gas hole. The gum, of course, is Beeman's gum. Sure. And that was the favorite of pilots of all stripes back in the day. You know, I first knew about that when I saw the movie The Right Stuff, because that's the gum that Chuck Yeager um, asked for every time he goes on a flight. But, you know, the fact that they got that detail right, again, shows that they were paying attention. So... Yeah, because I, I thought that was a nod to the right stuff. And then I discovered a little bit later on that that actually is kind of like pilot superstition. Yes. So anything else you want to say about this before we wrap things up? Just one more thing. Like while I said I liked the 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 the, the effects and so forth, could I, I just wanted to get your opinion on the overall look of this film. And, and I, it, it just feels to me like there was a certain period going from maybe like the sixties and even into the nineties with my, this might've been one of the last with that kind of thing, but, but it seems like some of the, like the, the, the production design, like Disney films has this kind of monolithic feel to it in that you can kind of tell a Disney production by looking at the sets and looking at the backgrounds and the way that everything is kind of designed to look. And I realize in this particular case, there is a lot which was drawn from the original graphic novel upon which this is based. But at the same time, there was just so much stuff behind the characters that said, Disney, you know, 
Do, do, do you get that feel that, that, that Disney films do tend to look alike in that respect? Well, I have to make a confession here. I am not now, nor have I ever been, the world's biggest fan of Disney films. So I have probably not seen as many Disney films as the average bear. Well, I'm a parent so, too, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, and also I have to admit the production design um, is not normally the element of a movie that I am paying attention to the most. And also the fact that we're talking about a movie that is a period piece. So that didn't really strike me at all when I was watching this. I don't know, it's just one of those things I pick up on now and then. It's like, for instance, if you look at like early Simpsons episodes, if you look at the backgrounds, you, you realize this, this has like the similar feel to like Rugrats episodes, which again, you might not have seen because, you know, you don't have kids. And then I realized, oh, yeah, it's the same animation company that worked on both shows for a while. And, and so there is going to be a similarity in the artwork. And I think it was the same kind of thing is like, man, this looks like a Disney film. This looks like, you know, if I were to go to, I don't know, Pirates of the Caribbean or the Jungle Cruise or something like that. You know, and there's a crashed plane in Jungle Cruise, man, that plane is going to look just like this plane over here in the Rocketeer. It's just, I don't know, a general feeling I get that this feels like a Disney film just from the overall artistic look to it. Okay. Well, again, I've also only been to Disney World twice mm -hmm. in my entire life. And the last time I went was 1979, and I've never been to Disneyland. So, again... I am a Di more of a Disney skeptic than most people <laughs> I know. But again, I did enjoy this. Yeah, I, no, we, we, this both films were just a ton of fun. They really, they really were. Um, yes, but but yeah, I'm just saying, yeah, that kind of contrived reality, kind of sort of, eh, I don't know. But yes, if you haven't seen them yet, go see them. They, you will definitely enjoy seeing them. Yes, and um, all through the night is. I don't know if it's readily available on um, physical DVD. I know for a while it was only available on a box set. The Rocketeer is available on uh, DVD, but if you're a uh, streaming person instead, All Through the Night is available to rent through Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and most other streaming services, whereas The Rocketeer is available to stream through Disney Plus and is available to rent or buy through Amazon, Apple Play, Google Play, and most other streaming services. Yes, indeed. And as promised, I nicked my daughter's Disney Plus account so I could watch this film. What, okay. What's happening next time around? Okay, so in our next episode, Ooh. since it'll be dropping around Christmas time, we're going to be talking about Christmas movies, specifically Christmas miracle movies. And why do I say Christmas miracle? Because miracle is in the title of both of them. From 1944, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, written and directed by Preston Sturges, and from 1947, the original version of Miracle on 34th Street, directed and co-written by George Seaton. And you can stream Miracle of Morgan's Creek through Canopy if you're lucky enough that your local library gets it. Otherwise, you can rent it through Amazon, 
Google Play, YouTube, um, YouTube, and other streaming services. Whereas with the Miracle on 34th Street, you'll be able to stream that if you have HBO or HBO Max and then rent it through most of the usual suspects as far as streaming services go. And you can also buy it through there. Also, both movies are, if you prefer physical media, uh, relatively uh, easy to pick up on DVD. Yeah, and please see Miracle on 34th Street in black and white, because when they colorized it, that was one of the worst examples ever. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I, will, well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll get to complain about that a little bit more next time around. Yes, and if you have a question or comment, you can always email us. Our email address is wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And you can find myself, Sean Gallagher, on Facebook and on Instagram. You can find me on the Twitter machine at Claude Call, or you can check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com. All right. So thanks for joining us, and we will talk to you all next time. Thanks for listening. Take it away, Rebecca. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare, and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, Go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. 